Well, we are in this message series titled Broken to Beautiful in which we are marking up 1 Corinthians. And today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And as I was thinking about this passage over the past couple weeks uh, and then thinking of Trevor and Ollie as they move here, it made me think back to when our family first moved here from the Denver area. We were living in Boulder County, Colorado uh, eight years ago. And uh, we were so amazed when we first moved here, and we still are, but we were so amazed when we first moved here by the simple kindness of the people. And uh, folks like really extended themselves to us in this beautiful way when we first moved here. Uh, some people met us at our home and helped us move into the home, and others uh, wrote really lovely notes of welcome to us, and, and people connected our kids with their kids which helped develop really important friendships that they have to, to this day. And it was just a really, really significant time, a very important window in our lives as I reflect back on that, that warmth, that welcome of kindness was, was a big deal. And um, one of the stories, though, that I thought about from that time as it relates to today's passage was there's this woman named Jill in our church. And she was on the search team that hired me and uh, Jill did a number of really sweet things for, for our family as we were moving into our home. And probably about a week into our home, uh, she called me one day and she said, hey, my husband and I have some steaks that we wanted to bring to you that you guys could have an easy dinner tonight. Uh, could we bring over some steaks for you? And then she said, I really should have thought about it before asking you. I didn't think to ask, do you all eat meat? And I happily reported to her that we happily eat steaks. <laughs> so we had a wonderful dinner. But I thought about that a lot over the years because uh, as I've gotten to know Jill, I've learned that she's a farmer's wife. And part of her livelihood, along with her husband, comes from raising cattle. And yet she took the time and decided to ask the question, given the possibility that we've come from Boulder, Colorado, where there are a lot of vegetarians, she thought to ask the question, do you eat meat? We'd like to give your family a gift, but if this is not something that you can enjoy, we'd be happy to go get you something else. And as she asked that question, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that she actually meant it that there wasn't going to be like this little hidden judgment if our answer was, no, we don't eat meat while we're vegetarians. And I think about that so often because it was such a beautiful example of one Christian choosing consideration for another Christian on how they may or may not be different without passing any judgment on that. It's beautiful. I'd like you to keep that story in mind as you turn to 1 Corinthians 8. And that story kind of sets the stage for what we're going to read. The big idea for today's message goes like this. Real love is really considerate. Say that out loud with me. Real love is really considerate. That's what you heard from Jill's story there. And that's what we're going to see here in 1 Corinthians 8. In fact, 
It's so profound to me in this passage that I've taken the liberty to write in my Bible next to the caption there with 1 Corinthians 8, that simple line. You might do the same thing right now in your Bible. Real love is really considerate. Listen to the way it played itself out here in the first century in the city of Corinth. Now about food, sacrificed to idols, Paul writes, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in this world. And that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, in quotes, gods, and in quotes, many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge yet. Not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all of your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister from whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way, you wound their conscience and you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Wow. As I said already, real love is really considerate. Like to have this kind of attitude that the Apostle Paul has, that he says, I will set aside my rights. I will defer to others who may be in need if their conscience is weak. I will think of them with all that I do. Real love is really that considerate. Now, I know there's this temptation to think, okay, it's 2023, and last time I checked, as I look around Kearney, Nebraska, there is no meat that's being sacrificed to idols. At least I hope not. Okay? And so this doesn't really apply to me, unless, of course, God calls you to a nation where that is happening. And maybe God would call you to a place like Papua New Guinea or to Mecca or some other place where there's many different nations across the world. Food is still sacrificed to, to idols. But there's this temptation to think, well, since that doesn't occur in our culture today, I don't really have to think about this. But friends, our first job as Bible students, our very first job as Bible students is this. Our job is to understand what does the biblical text say in its original context 
from the original author, and then after we understand that, then we can begin to do the translation work of how would I begin to apply this passage with specific principles to my life here in 2023, Buffalo County. Now here's a few questions, here are the kinds of questions, just to kind of whet our appetite, that this chapter would invite us to ask today as we think about real love is really considerate. Say for example, you've gotten to know a Mormon, and that Mormon has expressed desire to come into your home and to tell you a little bit about their faith, to which you say, praise God. You don't say, I shut the door on them, You say, thank you, Jesus. And you invite that individual into your home, and because you know that a Mormon believes drinking caffeine is sin, you go through conscience at this moment, their conscience. I don't want their conscience to be stricken over what I present to them, and so when they come to my house and I want to share my faith with them, I'm not serving them coffee, I'm serving them herbal tea. This is the kind of thing that this passage would lead us to think about. Or how about, for example, you're throwing a backyard barbecue party and you have one or two friends that you know are coming who have had struggles with alcohol. Maybe they're alcoholics or maybe they're problem drinkers, well, whatever the case may be, and you say to yourself, out of deference for the conscience of the person who is coming over such that I would not add temptation to their life, I am happily going to serve water and lemonade rather than beer at this backyard barbecue. Or perhaps you have a family member who has a pulmonary issue and so they remain concerned about COVID. And yet, they're very get, and, yet, and yet they're getting very lonely. Now, three years after COVID, there's not many people that are willing to come visit them and they're still very concerned about it. And they would love to see you. Would you happily go over to their home and happily strap on a mask the moment you get into their home out of deference for them simply because you love? These would be the kinds of questions that this kind of passage should arise for us. Does that seem relevant at all today? Okay. Here's the ground, my friends. Here's the ground that we've covered thus far in our study of 1 Corinthians, and I hope I have your attention now for how relevant this passage really is for us in 2023. But this is the ground, though, that we've covered so far. In chapters one through four of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been talking about divisions and unity in the body of Christ and the sense of one-upsmanship between different leaders in the body of Christ, and he's been punching holes through those walls. Then in chapters five through seven, he's been talking about marriage and sexuality and ethics around them. And now in chapters eight through 10, what the Apostle Paul is talking about is food and Christian freedom and missions, and how these all went together for his mission there in Corinth, and if we do the proper application work from the first century to our 21st century, how we'll see that they go together for us as well. So the Corinthians have written to Paul asking him a number of questions, including this one. Can we use our Christian freedom to eat meat that was originally sacrificed to idols? What do you think? Can we? That's what they're asking. 
So what I'd like to do here today is spend about 10 minutes just kind of explaining what's going on in this passage from a first century Greco-Roman context. And then after we do that, I'm gonna ask you to put in your thinking caps with me and just consider how we would apply this passage to our lives in our very, very different context. Most meat in Corinth was initially slaughtered at pagan temple ceremonies. Most of it was. In fact, in Corinth alone, tens of thousands of bulls and goats and sheep were slaughtered every year in Corinth at these temple pagan festivals to a pantheon of Roman gods and Greek gods. And most of the meat that then, after it was sacrificed there at those temples, some of it would have been burned up, but most of it was then taken from those temple ceremonies and brought to the marketplace where it was sold to those who could afford the luxury of meat. And so this is an everyday scenario, an everyday concern that the Corinthians are dealing with. Their question would have been critical to their daily living. They would ask questions like, can we eat meat? If we go into our friends' homes and they serve us a steak, can we eat it? If we go to a wedding feast, are we allowed to eat the meat that's served there? If we go to a funeral and there's a lunch after the funeral, are we allowed to partake of the meat that we know was sacrificed to an idol? And Paul is basically gonna say to them, when you are unsure what you should do, ask what love would require of you. That's basically his answer. And that's an answer for us too. When you're unsure in any given scenario what you should do, ask what love for your brother or sister, your neighbor, ask what love would require of you. And the reason for that is the way he starts this chapter. Look at chapter eight, verse one up on the screen. Love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, right? But love, it builds up. You ever, you ever experienced that? Anyone else in this room? Okay, raise your hand if you experienced that. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We've all had this experience that by itself, knowledge dimes when someone that has a lot of knowledge just likes to drop their knowledge dimes for the sake of showing you how smart they are. What does it do? It builds them up. It puffs them up. What does it do for you? Nothing at all, right? Knowledge by itself puffs up the speaker, but it's love that builds up the listener. That's what Paul's saying here. So the order of things is this. We receive the love of God. We get filled up by the love of God each and every day. And as we grow in knowledge of God, our knowledge of the things of God is always bridled by the love of God. And if our knowledge is not bridled by the love of God, then it ceases to be genuine Christian knowledge. Because knowledge bombs without love fail to build anyone up. So Paul's putting his pen to paper here and he's answering this question, well, once again, can we eat this meat that's been sacrificed to to idols? And he takes the time to articulate a couple things that they should know, a couple things that he'd like them to know. Verse four is the first. He says, so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing. Okay, this is the first thing he expects them to know, he'd like them to know. An idol is nothing at all. In other words, he's saying an idol is just a piece of metal. It's just a piece of wood. 
It's, uh, it's just a wallet. Come on, somebody. It's just a wallet with some pieces of paper in it. It's nothing of any lasting spiritual value. Amen? No lasting spiritual value here, so I will not worship this. Paul's saying the exact same thing relative to the idols that were presented to the people in honor of Apollos or in honor of Zeus or Diana or whoever it may be. An idol is nothing. Uh, we're finishing up a reading of the prophets right now as a family, and in the prophets you see this discussion of idolatry all the time. Here's an example, Isaiah 46. It says, some people pour out gold from their bags. You can just imagine this happening. It's a great word picture. Some people pour out gold from their bags, and they weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god. Then they bow down and they worship it. They lift it up on their shoulders to carry it. They set it up in its place, and there it stands. From that spot, it cannot move. (laughs) Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. Why? Because it's just a piece of wood, okay? It's just a piece of metal. It's nothing. So this is the first thing. Paul's saying, okay, remember, as you're asking this question, an idol is nothing. It has no actual spiritual value. People may think it does, but it has no actual objective spiritual value. The second thing, though, that he wants them to understand here is in verse 6. He says, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we we live. So there's one God, there's one Father, there's Jesus Christ, his Son, there's the Holy Spirit, there's one triune God, three persons, and this we know. But he's saying not everybody knows it. We all should know this, that an idol is nothing. He's saying I want you all to know in the church there's one God, three distinct persons, eternally united, but eternally distinct, but not everybody knows this. And so, since we are raised in this system, this culture in the Greco-Roman world where idolatry is everywhere, he's helping them to think through how would they defer for those who don't yet understand. Let me give you kind of a thought experiment. Say, Say you were raised in a culture for 30 years where you saw idol worship all the time, everywhere you looked. And there were animals sacrificed as a regular weekly experience. You witnessed it all the time. And part of the sacrifices was eating, and with the eating was worshiping. And the two went together. Say after 30 years of witnessing that, all of a sudden you came to faith in Jesus Christ. You believed that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened in time and space, and therefore you said, I'm submitting my life to him. I'm growing in love with him. Do you think you would immediately be able to eat a T-bone steak? No, it would be like really, really difficult to stomach No pun intended. It would be difficult to stomach that all this stuff that I saw up on those altars which were used as worship to the God of Zeus or the God of Diana is actually nothing. And so Paul's just saying to his church, be patient. Be loving. Be deferential one to another. Be considerate of those whose consciences are not yet fully developed or are related to 
this issue. Now, for those who are more mature, he's also saying, remember, an idol is nothing. So you are most welcome to eat that T-bone steak, but look around. Like, if there's a person that's near to you that you know, they're in your home group, and they're really struggling with whether they're allowed to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols, when you're near to them, the considerate thing is not eating it yourself. Now, even there, Paul makes this one exception. This was such a big issue in the Greco-Roman world that Paul addresses it in two chapters here in 1 Corinthians. So if you turn over to chapter 10 and look at verses 18 18 through 20, he addresses it well once again. And he says this, Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What I've done is I've been marking up my Bible as I underlined and highlighted the words, in the altar. So those who are participating in the sacrifices there in Corinth, they're eating at the altar as they're participating in the temple sacrifice. Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. As I've already said, it's nothing. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. So he's saying, stay away from those religious festivals where there's a great deal of feasting and part of the worship was the feasting at the festival. So he's saying, this is the one unbending requirement that I have of you, Corinthians, related to food. Just stay away from those festivals altogether and of course, stay away from eating those sacrifices though that were given at the, at, at the festivals. But otherwise, he says, the principle is very simple. Just think about who's watching. I know you have a freedom to eat this food, but if there's a less mature brother or sister nearby, you should abstain for the benefit of their conscience. Abstain so that they don't think that you're worshiping an idol. And then remind yourself, as you abstain, it's just food. Could you do that? I don't see too many heads nodding. Would you do that? Would you do that for your brother or sister? That's what Paul's inviting us to. We'll talk about applying it in our day in just a moment. But he says here in verse 8, remember, food doesn't bring you nearer to God. Okay? It does nothing to bring you nearer to God and does nothing to take you further away from God. Not hearing too many amens. Like it's easier said than done, right? Much, much easier said than done. But those are the principles, though, that he's given here. Paul, he's such a good pastor. He's coaching his church up. He's coaching his church up. I know you enjoy your freedom in Christ to eat and drink whatever you'd like, as I do, he says. I have freedom to eat and drink whatever I like. But your stomach is not as important as your friend's soul. And enjoying the pleasures of this world is not as important as sharing the hope of Jesus with someone who doesn't know Jesus. Okay? And so we would say, I freely limit some of my freedoms. Why don't Christians do this more? I freely limit some of my freedoms because I love my brother or sister so much I don't want their conscience to be defiled by what I do. 
I freely limit some of my freedoms because I desire that man or woman who is in this church but hasn't yet surrendered their life to Christ, I desire that they would never have a stumbling block in the way of them coming to know faith in Jesus because of what I do out of a lack of consideration for them. This is mature Christianity. I understand, though, this is like, it's hard but Paul is such a beautiful example for us in this. He understands what his one thing is. His one thing is knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. And so everything else falls underneath that. That becomes the litmus test for all of his life decisions. So he says, I'm happy to abstain from all kinds of things that I really enjoy for the benefit of those who are less mature such that they could perhaps come to know Jesus a little bit better. Okay? Here's the takeaway principle for us. We joyously abstain from some of what we like for the benefit of those that we're trying to reach. Would you say that out loud with me? Let's say it together. Okay, I know you're not joyful about this, but, <laughs> but I want you to act joyful because sometimes you have to fake it till you make it. Ready? All right. Hey, I'm looking at you, my sons, because I know you don't joyfully abstain from any food. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, ready? Let's say it together. We joyously abstain from some of what we like for the benefit of those we're trying to reach. Now, this is not about being walked over by other people. It's not that at all. And this isn't like a new legalism. And this is not deferring to the most legalistic person in the room. It is not that, okay? That's false. It's about consideration of the brother or sister that's weaker. It, it can't be about deferring to the most legalistic person because the legalistic person always thinks that they're stronger, right? It's not about that. It's about deferring to the person who is weaker, the person who's just getting their bearings in the faith, it's about looking out for others who might be asking questions about our faith. Now, a question that I've asked of myself this last week is, do I think of myself as the stronger or weaker brother? How do you think of yourself? as the stronger or weaker brother or sister? Okay, I probably tend to think of myself as the, the stronger brother a lot of times. Maybe I need to talk to God about that. <laughs> um, but if, in fact, I am... I'm not sure that I am. But if in fact I am the stronger brother, all that means is greater responsibility. It has nothing to do with greater privilege to do whatever I want. It's greater responsibility to think of the conscience of my weaker brother or sister. That's Paul's point. Now, this is like the exact opposite of consumer Christianity, is it not? Yep. I mean, it's the exact opposite. But this is the fruit of a gospel-centered life. We love God so much. We love other people so much that we are willing to defer some of the things that we freely can choose that we would like for the benefit of those that we're trying to reach. Let's talk about a few examples. That was a lot more than 10 minutes, I apologize. <laughs> but let's talk about a few examples of how we would apply this in 
our own context, what would it look like here in 2023, Kearney, Nebraska? Say the Lord calls you to some cross-cultural missions work of any kind, some kind of cross-cultural outreach. Do you know what job number one is? Responsibility number one, if God calls you to some cross-cultural missions work, is you must learn the culture you're going into. And then as you learn the culture that you're going into, you must be willing to defer to that culture so long as it's not in opposition to the gospel. Now the question is, are you a missionary? I sure hope you say yes. You are a missionary to your neighborhood. You are a missionary to your workplace. Wherever you live, if you're a called Christian, God calls you to the work of being a missionary wherever you may be. When I was in college, I led a Bible study and I failed to be a good missionary in this Bible study. This is at the University of Denver and uh, I had the blessing of leading the Bible study as I was really a brand new Christian. I hadn't been a Christian more than a couple of years. I really probably shouldn't have been leading that Bible study, but God takes those who will volunteer, right? And uh, there were a couple people in the study who were like me. They were newer Christians trying to figure things out. There was an atheist, there was a Hindu man, and there were two Muslims. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was a great, great Bible study. And it was my responsibility to, to lead the Bible study. And um, one day, as we were getting ready for Bible study, well, one of the ladies in the group comes up, and she decides it's time to play a game of tag. I thought we were doing a Bible study. And she comes up to me, and she taps me on the shoulder. And I had an old-fashioned Bible in my hand, not one like this. like one, You know the big, big old-fashioned Bibles that if you were to drop it, it would be a thud on the floor, right? So I had one of those in my hand. And uh, as she tagged me, I said, okay, game on. And the first thing I did is I dropped that Bible on the floor. And my dear friend Muhammad was watching. And I learned later from another Muslim, as Muhammad was watching, that the moment I dropped my holy book on the floor, I lost a lot of respect in his eyes. And not only did I lose a lot of respect, but he lost a lot of respect for Christianity. Because if this is the way that we Christians treat our most holy book, that we would just drop it on the floor, then he doesn't want anything to do with that. Because he has such a reverence for his Quran, as all Muslims do, that the Quran is located as the highest book in the house at all times, and it would never touch the floor. And I knew that. I had done my study of Muslims. I, I understood, I read the Quran. I knew that, and yet, in a moment, I didn't think about this dear friend, Muhammad, that I was trying to reach for Christ. What a miss! Now, I know that this doesn't defile the Bible to drop it on the floor, but he doesn't know that, and so I missed an opportunity with him there. God's not done with him, I pray, and still pray for, for Muhammad, and Trust that maybe God will do something in spite of my failure. Uh, say you have a, a Hindu friendship. You, you know, there's plenty of Hindus and Muslims in our community. It's not a lot, but there's some. There's some over at UNK. There's some at the hospitals. And you're developing a relationship well with a Muslim. You're developing a relationship well with a Hindu. And you decide to invite them into your home. What a wonderful thing to do. What a wonderful thing that would be to invite them into your home and to love them right where they are. 
And if you were to do that, if you chose to invite a Hindu into your home, you better serve vegetarian, right? Because you're concerned about their conscience. If you invited a Muslim into your home, you better not serve pork, right? Because you're concerned about their conscience. Let me meddle a little bit closer. Say there's another school shooting. After a school shooting, would it be wise to post a photograph of your gun collection on Facebook? No, it wouldn't be wise. It wouldn't be kind. It wouldn't be compassionate or considerate of those who are hurting. I believe in my Second Amendment rights, but that would not be wise. Instead, what would be wise, what would be really considerate of those who are different, those who are hurting, is posting a prayer for the victims, posting a prayer for the perpetrator, that the perpetrator would come to justice. That would be something that Jesus would do, right? Okay, well, like, these are the kinds of things that we process through as devoted Christ followers. Or maybe your conscience gives you liberty to watch a certain television show or to play a certain video game, and you have friends or family members, and their conscience is not as clear related to that TV show or that video game. In fact, they're concerned about it because there's content in that video game, there's content in that show that's been bothersome to them in the past for whatever reason. Do you talk about that TV program with them? Do you invite them over for a watching party? <laughs> Let's hope not, right? Okay? Real love is really considerate for those with differing convictions. Now, there's like a lot of gray area in all of this, and so I'm not suggesting a new legalism of any kind, okay? Uh, these are not black and white questions for, for the most part. But the deep disciple of Christ asked these kinds of questions, again, because we're so concerned with the needs of our brothers and sisters, with those though, that we're trying to, to reach, that we're so full of love that we would be willing to defer some of what we want for the benefit of those that we're trying to reach. Sometimes we're gonna fail, and that's okay. Like, I failed with my friend Muhammad, and I regret that, and I think about it often. It was 25 years ago, but I still regret that. And sometimes we'll fail. But God in his grace forgives, and God in his grace is bigger than our failures, right? Amen. Okay, so we keep praying through our failures, and we keep going back to the well where we receive the forgiveness of God and the, loveness and the love of God, which enables us to go forth and love well once again. What we're talking about here in chapter 8 is this commitment to treat others better than they deserve. As Jesus treated us better than we deserve, so we would treat others better than they deserve. And we would happily do so because we know our one thing is the cause of Jesus Christ, helping others disciple more and more to him and reaching others for the kingdom of God. And we recognize that our knowledge alone just puffs up. But it's knowledge that's bridled by the love of Jesus that actually reaches people. Let's pray for that.
Lord Jesus, I thank you for your forgiveness. As I think about this message and my failures to reach the very people that I was trying to reach and my lack of respect for Muhammad in that moment, I thank you that you have forgiven me. And I pray for him even now that you would send someone else into his life that might break through and lead him to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord for which we do have freedom both for today and for all of eternity. Father, we want to love really well in this church. But by ourselves, we have to just admit sometimes we're not all that loving. And for that, Lord, we are truly sorry and we humbly repent, we turn to you and we ask for your forgiveness. Lord, would you help us to hold that which we know with a level of humility that we wouldn't just hold on to our rights, but we would care more about those around us and we would limit some of the free use of our rights for the benefit of those that we're trying to reach. Would you keep us humble that we would be considerate of one another in this church? Father, please forgive us for the ways we've gotten puffed up. Please forgive us. Help us to love with the love of Jesus, which has so transformed our lives that we desire to touch others, both for their days and for all eternity. We give you glory and praise in Jesus' name.